Right, everybody? Well, it's 11.13, and uh, I've got 14 pages of notes. Um, I feel like I did pretty well a couple weeks ago in terms of time. You all may disagree, but uh, let's get to it. So we come now to the last week of our five-week survey of the Reformation, and that's revolved around these five touchstones of the Reformation, these five solas, Latin phrases that encompass some of the, the doctrinal convictions of the Reformers, especially over against uh, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Let's, uh, let's just briefly go over what we've done so far, and then we'll jump into the last one here. The first week, of course, we did sola scriptura, uh, you all, whether you realize it or not, if you're a member of Boone Trail Baptist Church, are Southern Baptist, and um, you should know that. Were you to go and look at the, the doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, you will find that in that statement of faith, the first doctrine addressed is not the doctrine of God, not the doctrine of salvation, not the doctrine of Christ. It is the doctrine of Scripture. And so Southern Baptists, we stand firmly in the stead of the Reformers when we say that first and foremost, our foundational commitment is to the Scriptures, and the Scriptures alone are our ultimate authority for faith and for practice. Certainly there are other things that can be authoritative. We look to the history of the church, we look to the to the, the creeds of the church and the confessions of the church, but whenever those creeds or those confessions come into conflict with the scriptures, we say with the reformers, scripture alone. So scripture alone, sola scriptura is answering the question, what is true, what is authoritative? We go on to sola gratia, grace alone, which answers the question, why? Why is it that God even saves men? And we learn that God saves men not because of anything that we possess, or anything that we do, but because of his grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. How is it that God saves men? What is the, the mechanism by which we move from death into life? And that is faith alone, solus Christus in Christ alone. There is no other intermediary between God and man except for the man, Jesus Christ, God himself who took on the flesh so he could be our intermediary. Now I think it's probably easy for us to see the doctrinal implications of these first four solas. Scripture, grace, faith, Christ alone. But as we come to this last of the solas, soli deo gloria, I think the doctrinal implications are are less clear. Surely the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church wouldn't have said that the glory goes to somebody other than God, right? And, and that's true. They, they wouldn't have said that. We want to make sure that when we, when we talk about uh, the theology and the doctrine of our Roman Catholic friends, that we are fair and that we're just, just like we want them to be fair and just when they talk about our doctrinal convictions. So let's not build straw men. Let's not build caricatures and knock them down. Instead, let's engage with what they actually believed and what they actually said. And they never would have said that the glory goes to anything other than God alone. Now, we could argue that in practice that may have been a different case. 
But really, sola deo gloria is not so much driving at a singular doctrinal distinction between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers. Sola deo gloria, rather, is the summation of the other four solas. It is the glue that holds the church together, that holds the life of the Christian together. We recognize that we are saved according to the scriptures by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of this is to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. A couple weeks ago when, when we talked about grace alone, I was asked a, a helpful question afterwards. Um, I don't remember exactly what, what the question was, but it pertained to works in the life of the believer in relation to, to grace alone. And essentially the question was something like this. If God saves us based solely on his grace, then, then what role do works play? And that, that's, a, that's a great question. That is a relevant question for you and I today. In fact, it's a question that over the last 30 years of the evangelical church has been heavily and stridently debated. Some would say that we are saved by faith alone, period. And you know, if we talk about works, then it's not faith alone. Do you remember Cardinal Bellarmine, whom we talked about a couple weeks ago? Cardinal Bellarmine was one of the counter-reformers. He was uh, an English cardinal, and, and he didn't think that justification by faith alone was the greatest of the Protestant heresies. He thought that the doctrine of the assurance of the believer was the greatest and the most fearful of all the Protestant heresies. And this is why Cardinal Bellarmine was concerned about that. Cardinal Bellarmine thought that grace alone plus faith alone did not equal salvation, but that it equaled antinomianism. What in the world is antinomianism? Here's a, this isn't a Latin phrase. This is a Greek phrase, so we're going to mix it up a little bit this morning. This month it's been Latin, 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 right? Now we're going to go back to the Greek. Antinomianism comes from two Greek words. The first one is pretty obvious to us, anti, right? And the second Greek word is Namos. Namos means law, and anti, of course, means against. So Cardinal Bellarmine's concern with the doctrine of the assurance of the believer was that it was going to be against, it was going to be contrary to the law. He thought that if we preached justification by grace alone through faith alone, then we would lead lives that were full of licentiousness and immorality. And it's easy to see where he gets this concern. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you real briefly. Do you not know, brothers, I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. A married man is bound by law to her husband as long as he, or, excuse me, as long as he lives, and a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress more and more and more about adultery and marriage. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. And then verse 6, but now we are released from the law. So Cardinal Bellarmine's concern, and the concern of the, the Roman hierarchy at the time, is if, is if we let this whole faith alone, grace alone thing run loose in the world, then there's going to be all kinds of chaos and disorder. It's going to turn the world on its head. People are going to be living in sin, and just like we were reading in Ephesians a couple weeks ago, following the, the lust of the flesh, 
following the course of this world. It was Martin Luther who coined this term, antinomian, because he saw what was happening to some people who claimed that they were saved by faith alone. They were doing just what Cardinal Bellarmine feared. They were in all kinds of sin, plural marriages, no marriage at all, and relationships with everyone hither and yon in society. There was, a, there was one city, in fact, that was overtaken by these people, and there was this is the one time, not one time, but a significant time in the history of the Protestant Reformation that Lutherans and Catholics got together and they took care of these Anabaptists who'd taken over a city called Münster in Germany, and Münster had descended into chaos. So the concern here for Bellamin, and the concern for Luther as well, is that if someone professes justification by grace alone, through faith alone, then they may go on with no concern for God's law and they may live lives that don't redound to his glory. Well, what, what do we do then with the law? What, what role do works play in our lives? And what is meant by this phrase, solely Deo Gloria? Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 11. And as we turn there, and if you glance down at it, it's, it's a passage, if you've spent any extended period of time with us, that ought to be familiar with you. This is a a frequent benediction of ours at the end of the service. If you don't already have it memorized because of that, then I would encourage you to memorize it. We're going to read this passage together, and as we read it, I just want to, as a, as a prefatory note, tell you that I think this passage exudes the essence of the Apostle Paul. So bear that in mind as we read this together, and, uh, and then I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, the Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? But from him and through him and to him, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I say this passage seems to exude the essence of the Apostle Paul because of what we know about Paul's life. Here's a, here's a, a brief, unofficial biography of the Apostle. A dreaded persecutor of the church, Saul, lately known as Paul, was rising quickly through the ranks of Pharisaism. He had credentials above and far beyond all the rest. And indeed, he speaks about these credentials in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His educational attainments would amount to multiple PhDs in modern terminology. He studied under the greatest scholar of his day, and all his knowledge and zeal led to its logical conclusion in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. Just listen as I read. When they heard these things, this is a sermon, a message by Stephen, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. 
But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. All of Paul's zeal, all of Paul's training, all of his years of rigorous study found their logical conclusion in the death of Stephen, an innocent man, stoned for proclaiming the gospel. Of all the people that you and I would expect to be followers of Jesus, Paul is certainly the least likely. And this is why his conversion on the road to Damascus resulted in disbelief and a great amount of suspicion amongst the believers in the day, in that day. In Acts 9, Paul is converted. He's on the road. He's on his way to Damascus to, to go and arrest some more Christians so he can bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in prison and persecute them. While he's on the way, he's blinded by a glorious light. And he says to the voice, Who are you, Lord? After the voice had said, Why? Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? The voice responds, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. And so for three days, he was without sight. Now, there was already a believer in the city of Damascus named Ananias. And Ananias had a vision. The Lord spoke to him. I think we oftentimes have this romantic view of the Lord speaking to us in visions. You know, we'd, it'd just be this wonderful thing, and, and there would be this transcendent feeling and little cherubim floating around with angels. Ah! Ananias has a vision, though. The Lord says to him, Ananias, and he says, Here I am, Lord. The Lord says to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Sarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, oh, Lord, are you, are, are you sure? I've heard about this man from a lot of other people and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. So, so Ananias, with his glorious, beatific vision from the Lord, is not so sure about what God's asking him to do. Ananias, of course, complies and goes and, and heals the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul then becomes really the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. The least likely, and Paul recognizes that, the least likely of all men that Jesus Christ would save, Paul the zealous persecutor of the church. Here in Romans chapter 
11, we've just gotten through ten and a half chapters of systematic theological exposition on the doctrine of salvation. Paul answers questions about why is it that only some people are saved? What's the purpose of the law? What about all the Israelites? What are they going to do about them? So after ten and a half chapters of this rigorous theological writing, we get here to the end of verse our chapter 11, and Saul just burst in praise. Now, this is typical of the Apostle Paul. This isn't the only time that he does this in his letters. But he bursts into song, singing praise to God for his salvation. You see, when Paul says, all the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, he is speaking from his own experience of God's Riches, riches that were so inexhaustible that they were even extended to him, a murderer and a persecutor of God's people and his church. And no earthly wisdom would ever extend that mercy to a violent persecutor like him. Only the riches in their depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God could save Paul, and he knew it. Paul goes on. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. What often seems like foolishness to men is God's wisdom, and God revels in that. And God's ways are beyond our scrutiny. So often in the course of our lives, we ask questions of the Lord, just like Ananias. Lord? Are you sure? You, you want me to go see Paul? But God's ways are beyond our scrutiny. God is wholly different than you and I. We are humble, feeble creation. He is glorious, exalted creator. And his mind is beyond our knowing and his ways beyond our scrutiny. Paul continues, verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Paul, being educated as he is, he knows the Old Testament. He knows this quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. He knows God is great beyond our standing, that he is fundamentally different than us. And Paul is acutely aware, having just been reminded on the road to Damascus, that apart from God's revelation of himself, we would never know him. Paul was a sola scriptura Christian. Paul knows, just like Isaiah knew, and just like he had experienced again on that road, that if God doesn't reveal himself to you and me, we would never know him. We would never desire him. Who has been his counselor? Well, what can Paul possibly say that God doesn't already no. What opinion could Paul have to enlighten the God of all creation? It's, uh, it's often been said, I think jokingly, around the office or on trips or, or whatever, that one day in heaven, you might be walking along and you might see me engaged in rigorous, unrelenting theological debate with Jesus about some particular aspect of doctrine or of, of eschatology, because 
Sometimes, I know this is going to come as a shock to you all, I can be a bit of a bulldog, especially, why, why are you laughing? I can be a bit of a bulldog when it comes to doctrine and theology. In fact, we were having a wonderful conversation on the way home from Nicaragua, from Atlanta, right, Wayne? A couple, couple weeks ago, and, and Wayne and I, we were just hugging, and it was like we were sitting on a swing there, and there wasn't any yelling, and I didn't have a vein popping out of my neck or, or anything. But that's exactly what Wayne said. He said, you know, one day you're going to get to heaven, and you're going to be talking to Jesus. And be like, really? Really, Lord? Are, are you sure? So maybe I have something to learn here from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, you, certainly me, we don't have any counsel to give to the Lord. There is nothing, there is no knowledge, no understanding, no twist of the plot that he is unaware of. Because God, he is the Lord of the twist of the plot. They are his twists. We can't be his counselors. Finally, Paul says, who has, be, who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid. You may remember in Philippians chapter 3 what Paul has to say about his accomplishments, what, what gift he might possibly have to give to the Lord. This is what he says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, filth, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith alone in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Paul is acutely aware that there is nothing in his hands he could bring. Simply to the cross, he could cling. That's it. But what does this mean for Paul? What is the result of this in the life of Paul? And Paul says, for the life of us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's a loaded theological statement right there. I know it doesn't seem like it, because those aren't, those aren't 17-letter theological words. From him, for him, to him. All things are from him because they exist because of him. He is the God of creation. They are through him because they are sustained by him. All things even now are being upheld by Jesus' word of power. Should Jesus cease to uphold all things, what would happen? It's not that the universe would explode or the universe would implode. It would just cease to be. There'd be nothing. If Jesus stopped his active work right now, they are from him. They are through him. And all ex things exist to him. They are not created for themselves. You are not created for yourself. I'm not created for myself. I'm not created for my wife or for my family or for you. We are all created for one. We are created for Christ and to bring him glory. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This 
is the theological foundation of soli deo gloria. This is why the reformers insisted that all things were for the glory of the sovereign, creating, redeeming God alone. This is the glue that holds our church and our life together. And when we exist for something other than solely Deo Gloria, when our purpose for existing is something other than the glory of God alone, we collectively cease to be the church. And you and I as individuals cease to be followers of Jesus. And instead, we've turned aside and we've followed something else. Paul spilled so much ink with this systematic exposition and this beautiful hymn at the end of it, but now Paul being Paul, he turns to application. And he spends essentially the rest of the book of Romans talking about what this means practically for you and me every day of our lives. Let's turn now to the first two verses of Romans chapter 12 and this summary statement of what it means to live our lives solely their gloria. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, if you've ever learned any Bible study methods, immediately your eyes are drawn to this word, therefore. And anytime you see the therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is there for. Right? So what is the therefore there? To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Soli Deo Gloria, and we'll talk about this a little more in just a moment, is, I think, more easily understood in the congregational life of the church. When we gather together in this place on the Lord's Day to to sing songs of praise, to, to read the scriptures together, to hear the word taught and proclaimed, to pray together and to give. But soli deo gloria, when the church is gathered, means nothing. If we are not living soli deo gloria, for the other six days and 23, no, 22 and a half, no, 22 hours of our lives together. When we gather here, it doesn't matter how fervent our songs are. It doesn't matter the tears that may stream from our eyes. If the rest of our lives are not lived for the glory of God, then we are no different than those Pharisees that Jesus said were whitewashed tombs full of dry, rotting bones. So here in this summary statement, we read about why the church believes, historically, that we must have faith and works. But they must be in the right order. We are saved by faith alone, Martin Luther said, but not by a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith in Christ's work on our behalf. But Christ's work on our behalf and the transformation that that brings in our life necessarily results in good works that follow. Let's look here a little more closely. What does Paul say here in verse 2 about our lives? 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Well, how is it that we're transformed? There are so many competing answers to this question. Even inside the church, other religions would say transformation comes from emptying your mind. Some would say we're transformed by ecstatic, mystical experiences. In fact, this is one of the one of the theological camps in the medieval Roman church that immediately preceded the Reformation, the, the mystics, mysticism. Paul says, however, that we are not transformed by ecstatic experience. We are not transformed by emptying our minds. How are we transformed? We are transformed by renewing our minds, engaging the intellect, making sure that 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 mind that was once enslaved to Satan and to sin and the flesh is now renewed in service to Christ and to his kingdom. And in renewing our, our minds, we will be able to discern the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. How are we at discerning, church, as individual believers and as a body together? How are we discerning at discerning what is good? How are we at discerning what is acceptable and what is perfect? I mean, I know this from my own experience. We're so easily swayed by emotive or emotional arguments. And uh, I'm going to get in trouble here. I know. Here we go. You ready? I don't want you to walk away from here saying, thinking or saying that Josh doesn't like emotion, because that's been said before. And that's patently false, okay? People inquire, they understand that. I'm like, sometimes I'm just like a, I'm like a baby up there. Um, but rather, our emotions are subservient to our minds. And what we strive for as followers of Jesus, with our emotions, is that our emotions would meet our intellects and that they would kiss there at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, when we understand Christ's great work, his sacrifice on our behalf, then there is an emotional response that flows not out of manipulative music or manipulative teaching or preaching, but that flows out of gratitude towards Christ and the gospel. Paul continues to talk about discernment and renewing our minds and good works in Ephesians chapter 2, which is on the tail end of that passage about salvation by grace. This is what he says in verses 8 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. The whole reason that you and I have been redeemed, the reason Jesus went to the cross to bear the burden for our sins, is so that we would do good works. Not so that we have something to bring Jesus, because again, we've got nothing. We don't have a gift to give to him that we might be repaid. But because of his work, we work. Created, or created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we maybe should walk in them? No, that we should walk in them. 
Now, there, there's a disconnect in, in some people's minds, I'm sure. Right? Now, I don't see it on your faces because I can't really see you because I need a new prescription. But I'm sure there's a disconnect in some, of, in some people's minds right now. Many of us, I in fact, was, was raised in a Southern Baptist church. And in my Southern Baptist church, there was kind of a ritual you went through when you were about 8 or 9 or 10 years old. Anyone remember what that ritual is? At the end of the service, you walk the aisle, say a little prayer, and a couple weeks later you get baptized. Right? Because we're Baptists. That's what we do. We are really good at baptizing children. Not so good at baptizing adults, but Southern Baptists are really good at baptizing children. Maybe your experience was a little different than mine. I remember I went forward because I was getting really frustrated that I didn't get to have a snack in church during the Lord's Supper. And I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to participate in this because I was, I was a heavy child and I liked to eat. And much to my disappointment, the bread is terrible. I mean, it's like, it's like you're chewing on sawdust. And then the grape juice is not particularly pleasant either when you have grape juice in, with sawdust mixed around your mouth. And then when you're trying to sing, you know, you get a little bit caught in your throat, and then you have a, a hacking fit, which is why anytime we have the Lord's Supper, like everybody up here has a bottle of water, lest we get a little piece of that wood stuck in our throats. But you know what? In, in the life of Southern Baptist churches... And this is, I think, true of evangelicals broadly. We look to that moment when, when children walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and were baptized. And some of you know people because you grew up with them, because they're your children, or because maybe it's you. You walked an aisle when you were a child, and you prayed a little prayer, and you got wet one Sunday in church. But now, you are far away from Jesus. Or your child is far away from Jesus. And yet we cling to that hope. You know, we're, we're, we're good heirs of the Reformation. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, the eternal security of the believer. Well, he, he prayed that prayer and he got baptized. So, so Johnny's okay, even though he lives like hell. Friends, that's not the gospel. And if we're clinging to that for our salvation, or if our hope for our children is in that, we're doing them a disservice. Because we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why Jesus has pretty strong words a couple times in the gospel. He liked to use fruit analogies, right? What does Jesus say about a fig tree? A fig tree doesn't produce olives. And an olive tree doesn't produce figs. A tree that's good doesn't produce bad fruit, and a tree that's bad doesn't produce good fruit. You will know them by their fruit. And what is a bad tree good for? To be chopped down and cast into the fire. I can feel my heart breaking right now. And I suspect some of your hearts are breaking because of people that we love, because of siblings, dear friends, who've walked away from the church and from the Lord. But let me encourage you. 
don't cling to a prayer they prayed and just pretend everything's okay. Everything's not okay. Instead, pray earnestly that God would save them. That he would be gracious to them. And speak the gospel to them. Tell them that Jesus has died for sinners. And that by faith they can come and they can have life and hope and an eternity. Let's not rest on our laurels, church. Instead, let's go to the lost. Let's bring them to meet our Savior, Jesus. Solidea Gloria led to a revolution in many respects. You, you may be familiar with the phrase worship wars. Um, you may have participated in the worship wars. If you did, shame on you. Um, worship wars were an unfortunate part of evangelical history where a lot of churches, uh, church members got angry at each other and said, I want it my way and not your way in terms of stylistic preferences and so on and so forth. During the Reformation, though, there wasn't so much a worship war as a worship revolution. It's a fundamental shift in worship. And this is where Solidio Gloria in the history of the Reformation, in the life of the church, this is where the rubber meets the road. Let me explain to you real quickly what congregational worship was like before the Protestant Reformation. You wouldn't have any chairs in here. We'd all walk in. You would stand up. There'd be a big screen, so you couldn't see me. You couldn't see the choir. You couldn't see anything up here. The scriptures, they would be read, of course, but they would be read in Latin, a language that you don't know because you're illiterate. You don't know anything. Um, you just work out in the field, or as a blacksmith, or whatever it is that you do. The choir will sing. You won't sing, though, again, because it's in Latin, and you don't know Latin. The priest will preach, possibly, he'll more likely read a, a sermon that's already been prepared. Again, nothing for you, because it's all in what? But hey, y'all are quick. I like it. Yes. It's all in Latin. And there's this crescendo that's taking place, at least with everybody up here, not so much with you all, because you're not participating in what's going on. And at one point, the priest, you turn around, and there would be an altar here, not a pulpit, a stone altar, and there would be the, the cup and the bread. The priest would turn, and he would say these words of institution. This is my body, hoc est corpus meum. He would raise it up. And that's the only thing you could see, because remember, there's a screen here. He would raise this bread above the screen. And as the priest raised the bread, you all would bow down on your knees. And you would worship this loaf of bread that the priest is raising up. Because in the theology of the time, and still today, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's the belief that when the priest echo, or intones these words, hocus corpus meum, the bread becomes the literal body of Christ, and the cup becomes the literal blood of Christ. And then, you don't even get a snack after all this. Because guess what happens? The priest eats it on your behalf. So the, the Protestant Reformation takes place, and everything in congregational worship is turned on its head. Now the scripture is read, and it is preached in your language, whatever it happens to be, German, Flemish, Dutch, English, uh, Welsh, Scottish, whatever it is. It's in your language now. You can hear what's going on. You probably can't read still but at least you can hear the word of God being read. 
And there's a, a sermon, a message from the Word of God that is directed for you in your language that you can hear. There's no more division. The screen's gone. You can partake of the bread and the cup. You can observe the Lord's Supper as a, as a memorial sacrifice and be spiritually nourished as Christ has commanded. And guess what? You can sing. And oh, how you need to sing. I'll look out sometimes on Sunday mornings and people stand on the earth with arms crossed. Disengaged and everyone's looking over that balloon. The whole service. Now everyone's really going to be looking at the balloon. <laughs> wow, I'm surprised. I thought y'all knew that was up there. And I'm going to try not to bust, bust everyone's chops so much, because I realize not everyone likes to sing as much as I do. And it really, I know it annoys people in the office, because I, I never shut up. It's nonstop. But at least when we gather together on Sunday morning, whether you think you can sing or not, whether you like the songs we're singing or not, as long as the songs we are singing are true, sing the songs because people died so you can sing in church. Don't forget that. People laid down their lives so you could participate in the worship of our glorious God. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And not just when we gather together. Every moment of every day of your life is solely Deo Gloria. The Reformation turned this on its head, too. At one point, the priests, they were this separate class, and they were kind of set off by their clean-shaven faces, which I, I, excel, I excel at. If you look at paintings of many of the Reformers, though, you'll see that they're, they have various states of facial hair. They're, they were hairy dudes. Um, but that was theological. That wasn't preferential. I mean, maybe it was preferential, but more than anything, it was theological. The reformers understood. They knew that everything we do says something about us. Everything we do teaches. And so the reformers, they started growing out their facial hair because they wanted to make the point that, that there is no priesthood. The pastors, when they, they get up before you to preach and when they serve to you the elements of the Lord's Supper, they're not a distinct class from you. They're sheep just like you are. Stinky, smelly, stupid sheep. Just like all the rest of us. They wanted to identify with their people. And when people are working on the fields, they don't have time to get up in the morning and shave their face. And anyways, if they do, they won't have a snack after breakfast later on or they could pick out when they get a little hungry right Ugh, that is disgusting this whole issue with beards i think it's it's really funny uh, if you see some pictures of luther i feel like i can relate to luther luther was not particularly adept at, at growing beards heinrich bullinger on the other hand he was known as the majestic beard of zurich apparently it was just glorious. If you've seen any of these hipsters um, rolling around today, it cracks me up to see hipsters. You know what hipsters are, right? They, always, they inevitably have flannel on. I'm not talking about anyone in here, by the way. <laughs> they inevitably have flannel on. And, <laughs> and they wear these jeans that are like super, super tight, like jeans that, that you wouldn't let, let your daughter wear. 
They wear women's jeans. And they usually wear boots, which they tuck their jeans. But they try to have these majestic, you're good, these majestic, <laughs> glorious beards. And Bullinger, he had this majestic, glorious beard. And he had a beard to the glory of God. And he had a beard to make a point so that people would know, so that he could teach his people, I'm just like you. I don't think I would have been a very good reformer. I may have had the, uh, the bluster or the loud mouth of Luther, though I think, think I probably lacked the conviction. I may have had the certainty of the great systematic reformer, John Calvin, but I probably don't have the mind to back that up. But I think ultimately the reason I would not have made a good reformer, and you all have experienced this, is because I'm unable to grow any further. I, I, one time, I think, Stacy, she didn't ask me, not Stacy, Ginger. Ginger, she didn't ask me. She asked Stephen, I think. She says, like, what, what's going on with, what, what's that on Josh's face? And that was my, that was my cue to <coughs> try and rake it off of there. Well, let's talk about some application real quick. What does all this mean for you and I today? When we consider the Reformation, I think we usually consider giants of the Reformation. We know Luther, we know Calvin, we probably know Knox. Maybe we don't know Bullinger so much or Butzer, but, but these are monumental figures in the history of the church. But the Reformation, for every giant of the Reformation, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of, of ordinary followers of Jesus, ordinary men and women, just like you and me. They weren't Latin and Greek and Hebrew scholars. They, they weren't pounding disputations on church doors. They weren't going against the Pope and railing against Rome at the threat of their life. They were just faithful followers of Jesus. I want to recount to you a story of one such faithful follower as we end. Helen Sturkey was just an average Scotswoman who lived in Perth in Scotland. And she doesn't enter history, really, until 1544, when her last child was born. It was customary at the time, when a woman was in her labor and delivery, uh, for she and the midwives who were tending to her to pray fervent prayers, asking for intercession from the Virgin Mary. And so it's getting to that point in delivery, and so the midwives, they turn to Helen. All right, Helen, time to start praying. Let's start praying to, praying to the Blessed Virgin. Uh, because of Mr. Gutenberg, Helen knew her Bible, and because of Mr. Luther, Helen knew theology. And so she declined in her prayer to the Virgin Mary. She recognized that they were nothing more than vain superstition, even in the light of what was certainly um, a dangerous point for both mother and child. As they continued to pester her, this is how she responded to those midwives. If I had lived in the days of the Virgin, Helen said, God might have looked likewise to my humility and base estate, as, she did the vir as he did the virgins, and he might have made me the mother of Christ. Now those were, those were shocking words. And you can kind of, you can imagine the, <gasps> the gas and the blood draining from the midwives' 
faces when Helen says something like this. But Helen understood that Jesus is our high priest, that we have access to the Father through him and through him alone, and we need no other intermediary. And so she insisted that she would pray directly to God through Christ. News of Helen's refusal to pray to Mary eventually made its way to the bishops and the priests in Perth there. And the bishop, he was not a fan of the Protestant cause, as most Catholics weren't. So he decided he was going to do something about this. So Helen and her wife James, or his wife, her husband, Helen and her husband James, four of the believers, were arrested on the orders of the bishop. And they were taken to trial for blaspheming the Virgin Mary. They were convicted and they were sentenced to death for their blasphemy. And the next day, they were all led to the gallows, Helen holding her newborn infant in her arms. She pleaded with the officials that she would be allowed to die beside her husband, James, but that request was denied. And so James was about to be taken away. Before he was taken away, Helen went up to him and spoke these words to him. Husband, be glad. For we have lived together many joyful days, and in this day in which we must die, we ought to esteem the most joyful of all, because we shall have joy forever. Therefore, I will not bid you good night, for we shall shortly meet in the kingdom of heaven. James was led up the gallows and was hung there before Helen. Her husband, now dead, all the eyes of the crowd turned to Helen and the infant in her arms. She handed her newborn daughter over to a nurse who would be charged with the child's rearing from that point on. And Helen was led away from the gallows. She was led to a pond. Men were hung. Women were drowned. Her hands and her feet were bound, and she was thrown into a gunny sack that was tied with weights. And she was thrown into the pond like a bag of scraps all for blaspheming the Virgin Mary, all for having the audacity to think she could approach the Father through Christ alone. For every giant of the Reformation, whether they died a natural death like Luther or fell on a battlefield like Zwingli or hung from a gallows or burned at the stake like Latimer and Ridley and Zanuck, for every one of those, there are innumerable other reformers whose names aren't recorded in history, but whose heirs live on today, whose heirs gather here in this place week in and week out to testify to and proclaim the same gospel that they lived and that they died for. Brothers and sisters, May we, by God's grace, live every moment of our lives, whatever we say, whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, for the glory of God, just like Helen Stuckey. And we can look forward with great hope to that day, when one day we will be able to walk up to Helen to say thank you. And then with Helen, we'll go together to worship.
Our Father, we thank you for the glorious message of the gospel, for the great hope that is ours in Christ alone, for the grace that you have shown us, for the gift of faith and repentance that you give, for your word which speaks to us. And so we ask that by your spirit, Father, you would encourage and strengthen and convict where you need to so that we might live our lives to your glory alone. And so like Helen and so many other faithful followers of you, we can proclaim with confidence that Jesus Christ is our only comfort, our only hope in life and in death, and he alone is worthy of all the glory we have to give. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, we come now to a time of response, and we'll stand, and certainly I pray you all respond, that as we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, you would recognize that that message echoes not just with the angels of heaven, but with the saints who have gone before and if you have questions about this gospel that Helen clung to as she died, or that Luther and Calvin fought for, then we would love to speak to you about that. Dwight will be down here to receive you and answer any questions you may have. Let's stand together and sing in response. <laughs>